Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for today, this opportunity to lift you up and worship by song. Now help us, God, to worship you by study. Lord, open our minds and our hearts, soften them, help them to be receptive. Whatever we brought in here today, Father, may those things not be obstacles, but may, by, may, may the power of your Spirit overcome those obstacles, those challenges, and meet us where we are to take us to the place you want us to be as men and women in Christ. Help us to be faithful to you as you are faithful to us. We know studying is such a big part of that because we know that doctrine determines behavior. What we believe is how we behave. We don't want our behavior to dictate what we should or shouldn't believe, but instead, God, affect us with your truth. And may we live in accordance with that truth to your glory. God, I thank you for our church. I thank you for everyone who's here or those who are online. And I pray your blessings on us. Keep us safe. Keep us healthy. Help us and give us opportunities to be witnesses to the cross and to the gospel by which all men and women can be saved. Thank you for the completeness of the salvation that's provided for us in Jesus. It isn't partial. It isn't a percentage, but it's complete. It's fulfilled and filled full. Thank you that every man, woman, and child who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. We don't have to add to it. We don't have to subtract anything from it. As a faithful father, you will help us work out all of our, all of our sins, all of our shortcomings. But we'll no longer be under your wrath and judgment as a creation that's wandered from your way because your Son has redeemed us. And what a great redemption that is. Now, as we study this last portion of John 13, such an incredible portion of Scripture, Lord, here we are. Speak to us and help us to hear us, hear you, so that we can respond accordingly and live by faith. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, this morning, the theme of glory, John chapter 13, verses 31 to 38, the theme of glory. By way of introduction, let me say this. The Bible is a magnificent book for a number of reasons. One reason is that while it is a single book to us, we refer to it as the Bible, it is actually a compilation of books, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, written by a variety of authors on three different continents and over a span of approximately 1,400 years in his helpful book, Understanding the Bible. John Stott writes these words, listen to them. In any case, how can the Bible, which in fact is not a book but a library of 66 books, possibly be said to have a purpose? Was it not compiled by different authors at different times with different objectives? Yes and no. 
There is indeed a wide variety of human author and theme. Yet behind these, Christians believe there lies a single divine author with a single unifying theme. Let me bring this to a point and say this. While the Bible is a book comprising many books, amen? And while the, book, the Bible is a book written by a variety of authors, amen? And while the book is written by a variety of authors of different education levels and different backgrounds and different skills, written on different continents and so on and so on and so on, yet... One of the greatest testaments to the inspiration of the Bible is that in spite of all of these differences, the Bible doesn't contradict itself in regards to its most important theme. When we see themes in one place, for example, we see the same theme in another. And what's more, these themes become more and more clear. Regardless of how difficult the Bible sometimes can be, the Bible is always clear, and the Bible oftentimes can be very, very simple. I remember what someone once told me. He said, I don't think that people don't read the Bible because it's too hard. I don't think people don't read the Bible because it's too easy. One such example of the point that I'm making here in regards to themes, in spite of the Bible being written on different continents over a long period of time and by different authors, is the theme of glory. Namely, that all things, how many things? All things are done to the glory of God. Paul once wrote these words in Romans 11, 36, uh, sorry, 38. No, it's 36. I think that's a typo. For from him... And through him and to him be all things, and to him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Or Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11. Isaiah records God as saying these words, For my sake, for my sake I do what I do, because how should my name be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. God does what he does because God has his reasons. And God is not pursuing our counsel, our advice, or our ballots, though we often want to give them to him. God does what he does because he will not share his glory, he says in Isaiah chapter 48, verse 11. He will not share his glory with another. So it should be no surprise to us that now, when he is starting at or staring at his imminent death, Jesus is tying it to the glory of God. It should be no surprise to us as we see this theme permeating the entire Bible that God does all things for his glory, the good of his people, yes, but for his glory, his recognition and honor. As God does all those things, it should be no surprise to us that when we get to the climactic act of redemption in history, sure, it's for our good, but ultimately... The crucifixion of Jesus Christ on the cross at Calvary 
is for God's glory. And so here we are at our first point this morning. Look at it again, if you would, please. Verses 31 and 32, our first point is simply God's glory. God's glory, verse 31 says, when he, that, uh, when he had gone out, that is Judas, if you remember, Jesus dips the bread, gives it to him, he takes it, Satan enters into him, sort of seals his, his eternal destiny, if you will. If you didn't miss, if you missed that message and you want to catch up on it, it's on our podcast, either on our website or on iTunes. You can go back and listen to it there. But for the sake of clarity, Judas takes it, gets up, Jesus says, do what you got to do. And he leaves. And the disciples are not certain as to why he left, but Judas knows and Jesus knows. So we kind of turn a corner at this opportunity. Now that the betrayer is out of his presence, now that the betrayer has left that intimate setting, as we've called it over the past few weeks, Jesus is just with his disciples, and he says, guys, now is the Son of Man, what's the word? Glorified. Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Listen, Jesus is saying that as we see here, he is going away. And where he's going, the disciples won't be coming. But it's to their advantage that he goes away. Because wrapped in all of this, wrapped in this moment of history, this intimate setting and this conversation, it is for the glory of the Son and the glory of the Father because these two things cannot be separated. Well, what's glory? Use that word often already this morning. What is glory? Well, it's a good question. When we use the word glory or we see it in the Bible... It can mean a few things. It typically refers to God's beauty, his awesomeness, sometimes his matchless reputation. In fact, the Hebrew word for glory is sometimes translated weight or heaviness. I love that. God is weighty. So when we say that God should receive the glory that is due to his name, we're saying that he should get the praise. He should get the recognition. He should get the honor, and he should get the respect that is due to him by virtue of the fact that he is who he says he is and that he has done the things that he has done. In this instance here in John chapter 13, although Jesus hasn't actually died as the lamb that was slain for the sins of the world, yet it is as good as done. As far as he's concerned, at this point, he says, now is the Son of Man glorified. He doesn't say, tomorrow and then the third day I will be raised and glory. He says, now the Son of Man is glorified. Now. D.A. Carson writes these words. He says, now bringing to a climax a theme developed through the gospel, the evangelist, that is John, makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the very place where we get to know God, <clears throat> where we get to know God best, excuse me, 
the greatest moment of displayed glory was in the shame of the cross. John makes it clear that the supreme moment of divine self-disclosure, the greatest moment of displayed glory, was in the shame of the cross. I wonder when the last time was when you, like Jesus does here, looked at a challenge, looked at an obstacle, looked at a difficulty, and said, God is going to be glorified in this. It's as good as done. God is going to be glorified in this thing. I wonder when the last time was when you didn't complain or grumble or spew all kinds of pessimism and negativity and instead said, I'm going to be faithful to the will of God in this thing and God will be glorified in this thing. If Jesus can be glorified in his crucifixion, if God can be glorified in breaking his son on the cross as a substitutionary atonement for sinners like you and me, if this can be done, what situation could we possibly face wherein God couldn't be glorified? I humbly submit to you this morning that we often don't see God's glory in a thing because we're unwilling to share glory. Or we're too quick to ascribe his glory to something or someone else. Church, say amen if you're listening. Let's give glory to God. Let's place glory where it is due. Let's not lean upon our familiarity, our experience, our tradition. Sure, there's helpful notes and all of those things, but ultimately, not some things are to the glory of God, but all things are to the glory of God. That means the good, that means the bad, that means the ugly, to the extent that facing the crucifixion, knowing the plan of the Father, the Son says, not tomorrow my my Father will be glorified and he will bring me glory in my death but now now again Romans eleven thirty six. somebody probably checked me on that I believe it's 36 Romans eleven thirty six. for from him and through him and to him are all things and to him be glory forever and ever amen Eleven thirty six. Bible drills, 1136, got two over here. Any, anybody else want to argue? There aren't 38 verses in chapter 11 of Romans, I don't think. Okay, <laughs> all right. Wow, we checked you guys on Bible drill there. We're moving to our second point, glory. So that's, a Rom- that's Romans 1136. I didn't mean to deviate there, but I wanted to pause there because it's such a great verse in case you want to find it. It's there, 1136. Our second point this morning is Christian love. 
We're going to move forward. Looking at verses 34 and 35, if you'll look at them with your eyes as I read, Jesus turns the corner after saying this about his glory. Verse 33, of course, little children, yet a little while I am with you. You'll seek me, and just as I have said to the Jews, this is in chapter 7 of John, if you prefer to go and look there. So now I also say to you, where I'm going, you can't come. If I may paraphrase, okay? Where I'm going, you can't come yet. Amen? Jesus says later in chapter 14, I'm going to my father's house and I'm going to set up a room for you. Okay, So so we know that we will be joining our Lord, but not yet. Verse 34 says, a new commandment I give to you. In the meantime, I'm going to set up a place you can't come, but in the meantime, I'm going to give you a new commandment. That you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Here in one of the most popular passages in the Bible, Jesus gives what he calls a new commandment. Not that it differs much from the others, The Bible, for example, tells us all the way back in Leviticus 19.18 to love our neighbors as we would love ourselves. But Jesus does refer to this word as a new commandment. I know you see it with your eyes just as I see it with my own, so we can't avoid that. Amen? It's a new commandment. This is what he says. So let's ask the question of the word of God. How is it new? In what way is this command new? Well, I'm going to make two brief suggestions. First, I think it's new because Jesus adds these words, just as I have loved you. Jesus has now demonstrated a sacrificial, service-oriented love that has overshadowed everything that the disciples have learned from the religious culture around them thus far. Christians aren't to love the way the world loves. Christians aren't to love the way other religions love. Christians aren't to love the way various philosophies suggest they are to love. We are to love just as we have been loved by Christ himself. A new commandment I give to you. Okay, another commandment. Great. I want you to love everybody. Well, isn't that what God's word already tells us? I want you to love everybody the way I've loved you. Secondly, I think it's new because this love envelops all those who are in Christ. By this, Jesus says... All people will know that you are my disciples, conditional clause, if if you have love for one another. It doesn't say if you have love for one another, you will be my disciples. It says by this everyone will know that you are my disciple, conditional clause, if you have love for one another. In other words, there are some Christians who are loveless and bitter and need more Jesus and a work of God the Holy Spirit in their life because they're going to glory, but man, they're making it look ugly. They're making it look bad. 
with the way they talk or the signs they wave, the articles they post or their choice of language toward people. Whatever the case might be, they seem loveless. They seem bitter. They seem angry all the time. There's no love being evidenced in their life. And so why would someone wonder if Christ had made an impact in their life? Sure, Christ may have made the impact. They may be eternally redeemed and saved and on their way to glory, but people won't know it because there's a conditional clause between the redemption and people knowing. And the conditional clause is if you have love for one another. Don't you sometimes want to say, man, are you a Christian? You say you're a Christian, but you seem really miserable. You seem really unhappy all the time. And maybe they're Christians. I'm not passing judgment. But what Jesus is saying here is not if you have love, you are my disciple. He says, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciple. If you have love. We can't reverse the clauses. You may be a disciple, but you may be a bad one. And in so being a bad one, losing the opportunity for others to know that you are loving, Jesus says, just as you have been loved. I want you to note something else, as important as it is, to be a knowledgeable Christian. Knowledge isn't the thing by which Christians should be best known. As important as it is to be a servant, service isn't the thing by which Christians should be best known. Somebody say amen. amen. As important as it is to be evangelistic, evangelism isn't the thing by which Christians should be best known. As important as it is to attend worship regularly, going to church isn't the thing by which Christians should be best known. Listen up. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples. If what? If you have love for one another. What is the thing by which we should be best known? Love. Now, I know you're probably thinking like I think. Why do we put so many things ahead of love then? Why do we as churches create a local congregation in a wonderful building such as ours and we schedule a time and we say we're going to worship at this time and, and make people feel like the Christian life exists for an hour on Wednesday night and an hour on Sunday morning and make people feel like when, when Philip leads somebody to Christ in the book of Acts and they come to Christ and they say well I want to get baptized Philip doesn't lead them through a new members class and a 101 and a 201 and a 301. He just baptizes them. But, but here where we are in 2021, South Florida, we're smarter. We're wiser now. We don't do things the way the apostles did. <laughs> this is a little convicting, isn't it? You want to get baptized? Yeah, I want to get baptized. Okay, well, you're going to have to fill out this prerequisite, do this IQ test answer these questions, you got to answer them right, and then we'll baptize you. There's no such thing in the Bible. There isn't anything in the Bible either that says that you have to be baptized, for example, before you participate in Lord's Supper. Both ordinances are important. One continues on and on and on and on, the Lord's Supper. The other one is done once. Baptism. 
But if we don't have a baptism scheduled except for next month and we're doing Lord's Supper today, I'm not going to I'm not going to refuse someone Lord's Supper because they haven't been baptized. The Lord's Supper has nothing to do with baptism. We have a tendency to build gates and barriers and and we navigate people to make ourselves comfortable. I'm thoughtful of what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3.17, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But some of you don't like liberty. You're intimidated by freedom. You want rules and restrictions and guidelines that you can check off as you go through today to make sure that you are a quote-unquote good person. But Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your strength, all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. And then go do whatever you want. Because if you follow those two commandments, everything else will be godly. Amen? We should be known for being knowledgeable, but not best known. We should be known as people who worship. Attend church, but not best known. We should be known as people who are service-oriented and want to help our city and our community and those in need, but not best known. The thing that Christians should be best known for is love. We must keep love close, and we must keep love primary without forsaking these other things also. By this, Jesus says emphatically and without equivocation, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Moving on, please note that Jesus doesn't say that all people will like it. I get this phone call on a regular basis. Dude, well, not dude, but Pastor Joe. I feel like I've done a good job this week. Like, I, I, you know, not, not the self-congratulatory thing, but like, man, I've read my word. I've been praying. I'm, I'm fighting against sin in my life, telling the devil no, right? Resist the devil and he will flee from you, John 4, James 4, 8. I, I, I've lived a, a, a good week this life. You know, this is man to man. Nobody's good in the eyes of God, right? We need, we need forgiveness and redemption. We got that. You understand the conversation here. And yet, I'm getting pushback from people. Well, the scripture doesn't say that by this all people will like you if you have love for one. That's not what it says. It just says that by this all people will know to whom you belong. Some of you need to understand that. Some of you need to go, oh, oh, it's not me they don't like. It's Jesus in me. Oh, I see. You see, he doesn't say that all people will agree with you or your convictions if you have love for one another. He simply says that by our love lifestyle, people will go, that guy's probably a Christian. (sighs) 
They may hate us. They may despise us. They may look at us and go, but brother, they will know. They may hate us, despise us, mock us, ridicule us, or worse, but they will know that we are his. Not by how often we go to church or how often we serve or take sandwiches to the homeless or share the gospel in the street or et cetera, et cetera. All those things are things that we should do. But the thing by which we must be best known is our love. And that doesn't mean everyone is going to like us. It just means that everyone will know to whom we belong. And frankly, I'm okay with that. We must, here and now, stop being the spiritual cowards that lead the masses into believing that love is weak, that love leads us to convictions that are dumb, and that love leads us to a faith that is gullible. I don't believe any of those things. In fact, there's three points that I want to make to you right now. I hope you'll write these down. The first thing is this. Love leads to convictions. Love leads to convictions. Just by way of illustration, let me paint this picture. When Dimey and I got married, some of you may know Dr. Ted Place, He's gone to be with the Lord many years ago, but Dr. Ted Place was our, our, our pastor and counseled us and married us. When Dr. Ted Place stood there between Dimey and me and said, will you? And I said, I will. And she said, will you? And he said, will you? And she said, I will. That was love and conviction. Second. Love leads to consistency. If there's love, there will be consistency. I love what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. He says, love never gives up. How good is that? Love never gives up. I can say this because my wife is not in this room. There are plenty of times when I went outside and kicked the pot and said, I said, I quit. I'm done. I can't take this woman. I can't take her kids. I can't take her dog. I can't take this mortgage. Somebody say amen. Amen. I can't take this car payment. I can't take, is this my house? Right? There's plenty of times Joe has said, I'm done. And then the love of God says, no, you ain't. Because I'll quit. I'll quit on you. I will quit you like a habit. I'll quit you. But God's love says, you ain't quitting nothing, man. I'm here. And you do what I say. I don't do what you say. Oh, we got a lot of people saying, my Christianity fits perfectly in my little circle in my little square peg hole. That's not the way it works. When Jesus shows up in your life, when Jesus brings the love of God to you, 
He doesn't only bring these convictions, he brings a consistency you didn't have before because the consistency is motivated by a purpose you didn't have before. I didn't have this purpose before, but I've got that purpose now. What's different? I want God to be glorified in my love of others. If I fail, I fail. Fine. But as a Christian, if I fail, now what testament have I given to my God? Of my God. To whom and through whom and for whom are all things. Some of you need to leave here today going, I haven't been so consistent. And that's because I didn't know what I should be consistent for. Now you need to hear me. You need to be consistent for the love of God that's in you. You need to be consistent for the testimony of Christ that is in you. You need to be consistent not because it's convenient. You need to be consistent because of the convictions. And that leads to our next point. And that's this. Finally, love leads to courage. Love leads to courage. I love what John says in 1 John 4.18. You might need to write this one down. 1 John 4.18, John says, There is no fear in love. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. You know, when when God is there, when God is present, when the Spirit of God has baptized you and possesses you, is present with you all the time, and fear comes, the love of God says, don't come over here with that stuff. Don't come over here with that stuff. But love requires courage, church. And in regards to our faith, love leads to courage with our eternity paid for by Christ. What do we really have to be afraid of? When we are challenged by God the Holy Spirit to love the unlovable. When we are challenged by the Holy Spirit to do a service that we feel we're ill-equipped for. When we're challenged by God, you fill in the blank, why are we afraid? Let's be courageous. Because the love of God, that perfect love, that is in Christ Jesus, it casts out fear.